Hello, and welcome to Further Up and Further In, a podcast. This is now episode number 12, in which we'll discuss chapter 10 of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, titled The Spell Begins to Break. And uh, this is another moment where in the opening of the chapter, we have uh, Lewis's interlacing technique, where we are moving from one scene to a completely different scene and then back again, so that we can follow multiple plot lines and also draw some contrasts within those plot lines. So two chapters ago is when we left off with Mr. Beaver at the end of chapter eight, telling us that there's not a moment to lose as they head off to go uh, flee from the white witch who's on their on her way to the dam, but also to go uh, meet Aslan. And then chapter nine in the witch's house is when we uh, cut to Edmund's story as he trudges his way up to the white witch's castle. And then now in chapter 10, we're back to the beaver story. The opening line of chapter 10, Lewis says, now we must go back to Mr. and Mrs. Beaver and the other three children. So this is a moment where Lewis is able to guide the reader through uh, character development, plot development, as it happens along separate streams and separate paths that Edmund is making his way toward the culmination of his betrayal that he is mired further into his own sin and is discovering the negative consequences of that with the White Witch and her power and her violent aggression. And now we are also seeing Peter and Susan and Lucy uh, ennobled, that they are being led further and further into the destinies for which they were brought to Narnia in the first place. And that will uh, culminate at the end of this chapter with Peter and Susan and Lucy receiving very specific gifts from Father Christmas. And so the end of this chapter, uh, Peter and Lucy and Susan contrast Edmund in Edmund's descent toward uh, the natural consequences of his empty and cynical and self-centered heart, which is that he will be robbed of anything satisfying, robbed of his freedom, robbed of community, that he will be isolated from his family even further by aligning with the White Witch. But then also Peter and Susan and Lucy will be uh, moving further toward uh, their destinies as well, especially with the receipt of these gifts. The chapter opens with Mrs. Beaver uh, having a rather uh, humorous moment where she is the one who is uh, thoughtful enough to pack food and provisions for the, the trip. Susan rather cheekily gives her some grief about not hurrying up and Mrs. Beaver is packing sandwiches and so on. Uh, But then once they leave the dam, they are making their way through the snow in which Lewis says the snow has ceased for a moment and the moon is shining, which we already saw that from Edmund's trek just a few minutes earlier than the children's. But then it starts snowing again and Lewis describes the march of the children and the beavers uh, as they begin their quest in a very particular way. And it's a a quite interesting way where they are walking and walking and trudging through the snow, growing more and more uncomfortable and tired as the journey goes on. And this is a moment where I believe Lewis is drawing from personal experiences of his in order to describe the feeling that these children are experiencing of having this rather troubling and fearful trek 
through the snow, trudging through the snow, uh, concerned and, and rather terrified and frightened of an enemy that is uh, close at hand. The idea that they could be found out, they could be discovered and perhaps even killed at any moment. And that experience from Lewis's that I believe is paralleled here is Lewis's own experience in the trenches in World War I. That Lewis, uh, like many others of his generation as a young man, had fought in World War I, the war to end all wars, uh, one of the most brutal and inhumane and uh, violent wars that man had ever seen. With so much, with so many innovations and and uh, new realities to that war to make it even more brutal and devastating. The use of tanks, the use of aerial warfare, uh, chemical warfare, the no man's land of the trenches, and how psychologically devastating that could be. And Lewis, like Tolkien and so many others, had experienced that war firsthand. And there's a particular poem. Uh, written by a man named Wilfred Owen, who he himself had fought in World War I and even died at the end of it. He died in 1918. Uh, so he did not live to see these poems published, but they were published posthumously. And uh, I'm sure that Lewis would have been exposed to them. But there's a particular poem by Owens uh, of Owens that uh, interestingly uses similar language that Lewis is about to use to describe uh, Lucy and Susan and, and Peter walking through the snow in this fearful and uh, vulnerable condition as they are fleeing from the White Witch and fleeing from a home that was warm and filled with uh, food and filled with community. And now they are out in the open air trudging through the snow. It's a, it's a scene that Hemingway uses as well in uh, his novel, A Farewell to Arms, to describe the line of soldiers just trudging endlessly through the rain and through snow and just trudging, walking and walking for hours on end, carrying heavy loads on their backs. Owen says this at the beginning of his poem, Dulce et Decorum Est. He says, he's describing the soldiers marching in World War I. He says, bent double, like old beggars under sacks, knock-kneed, coughing like hags, we cursed through sludge, till on the haunting flares we turned our backs and towards our distant rest began to trudge. Men marched asleep. Many had lost their boots, but limped on, bloodshod. All went lame, all blind, drunk with fatigue, deaf even to the hoots of tired, outstripped five nines that dropped behind. Now that's the opening stanza of Owen's Dulce et Decorum Est, his war poem, in which he's describing the lines of men who are bent over, coughing, hacking, cursing through the sludge, and then the rather haunting line and a very uh, powerful image where he says, men marched asleep. Many had lost their boots, but limped on, bloodshod, all went lame, all blind. And now we look at uh, Lewis's portrait of the children and the beavers marching through the snow as it begins to fall again, with an eerily similar atmosphere created, and with the added reality that these are not young men uh, armed with guns, these are not soldiers, that these are children, that we can be tempted to forget that that Peter and Susan and Lucy 
are all uh, children. It's, it's probable that Lucy's around eight. Um, Susan is probably around 12 and then Peter at 13. And yet here they are marching through the, the snow and the wet ground of this foreign land, a land far from their home, just like the soldiers in World War I that Owen describes. And uh, they are being pursued by a villainous, evil enemy. Now, listen to how Lewis describes the children marching through the snow. He says, It would have been a pretty enough scene to look at it through a window from a comfortable armchair. And even as things were, Lucy enjoyed it at first. But as they went on walking and walking and walking, and as the sack she was carrying felt heavier and heavier, she began to wonder how she was going to keep up at all. And then Lewis says, At last Lucy was so tired that she was almost asleep and walking at the same time, when suddenly she found that Mr. Beaver had turned away from the riverbank to the right and was leading them steeply uphill into the very thickest bushes. And notice the similarity of that language, the repetition of walking and walking and walking. Lewis even dashes the final instance of the word walking to set it off even further to imply the monotony of the event of their walking and how the sack she was carrying was heavier and heavier. And then the almost identical line from Owen's poem and from the images Hemingway creates in A Farewell to Arms, where it says that Lucy felt as though she was asleep and walking at the same time. That is, it's very striking to see this as a portrait of war, which the children are being prepared for, that they might have to face a great evil here, uh, and they might have to fight for their lives and fight to defend themselves. And the brutality of the event. Now, this is a children's book, certainly, but Lewis is not afraid to provide a realistic portrait of darkness and evil. It's like what Tolkien does in the beginning of the Fellowship of the Ring, where the hobbits, where Frodo and Sam and Merry and Pippin are running from the Black Riders. And they are suddenly caught in this uh, storm of peril and darkness, that life is not safe. And the adventurous road that all of us are destined to take is not promised to be easy and convenient, that we might have to march and march and march under intense struggle and devastating circumstances. And Lucy is no different here as she marches onward following Mr. Beaver endlessly through the snow. Lewis says, Lewis, Lucy immediately stooped down and crawled in after him. Mr. Beaver finds a cave. She stooped down and crawled in after him. Then she heard the noises of scrambling and puffing and panting behind her. And in a moment, all five of them were inside. And this cave functions as a sort of trench where the children and the beavers are huddled close underground, uh, trying to hide from the enemy that's close at hand. Listen to how Lewis describes their experience in this cave. He says this, it wasn't nearly such a nice cave as Mr. Tumnus's, Lucy thought. Remember, she's far from home, far from comfort, far from warmth. Just a hole in the ground, but dry and earthy. It was very small, so that when they all lay down, they were all a bundle of clothes together. And what with that and being warmed up by their long walk 
they were really rather snug. If only the floor of the cave had been a little smoother, then Mrs. Beaver handed round in the dark a little flask out of which everyone drank something. It made one cough and splutter a little and stung the throat, but it also made you feel deliciously warm after you'd swallowed, and everyone went straight to sleep. Now notice how Lewis is describing this cave, this little hole where all of the children and the beavers are huddled close. It's very much like the sort of close quarters one would have had in the trenches as they tried to sleep on the dry and dirt, on the dry and earthy dirt, trying to bundle up with one another to keep warm. And then also this flask that's passed around where it made one cough and splutter. Uh, those same words are used in Owen's poem to describe the soldiers coughing and hacking. Uh, where these children are placed in a very frail and very fearful environment here that mimics, in many ways, the experiences Lewis knew all too well of his own youth in uh, the trenches of World War I. Finally, uh, Mr. Beaver, they hear jingling bells coming, which they believe to be the White Witch's sledge. But of course, remember from earlier chapters, she had ordered uh, the sledge with no bells on the harness. So this can't be the White Witch. Mr. Beaver goes out to investigate. And he comes back to get the children, and the tone shifts quite abruptly to one of fear and turmoil and trudging and sledging uh, toward one of joy and celebration. Mr. Beaver says, come, come on, come and see. This is a nasty knock for the witch. It looks as if her power is already crumbling. Peter says, what do you mean, Mr. Beaver? And he responds, didn't I tell you that she'd made it always winter and never Christmas? Didn't I tell you? Well, just come and see. And this is the phrase that Lewis uses often that uh, comes straight out of John 1. Come and see. Come and see. Behold, uh, the, the glorious king is here. Behold, the Lamb of God. Come and see. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Mr. Beaver is inviting the children further up out of the cave and to see for themselves with their own eyes the cause for such hope and celebration. And what they see, the next line, Lewis says, and then they were all at the top and did see. What a great line. And then they were all at the top and they did see. And what they see is one of the more controversial features of the Narnia Chronicles, Chronicles especially the line, The Witch in the Wardrobe, and that is the arrival of Father Christmas which uh, several critics, uh, including Tolkien himself, uh, argued with Lewis uh, and continue to argue with Lewis and, uh, and critique him for his inclusion of Father Christmas in the story. Uh, Tolkien, who in The Lord of the Rings created this very unified and very exhaustive myth uh, with Middle Earth and all of the languages and all of the history that uh, went with it, did not much care for Lewis's choice to populate Narnia with all sorts of different things. Uh, Evan Gibson, in describing this uh, assembly of characters and uh, borrowing from different myths and different cultures to populate Narnia, um, he observes this about Lewis's practice. Uh, Gibson says, From the folklore and fables of many cultures, he invites creatures of all sorts, dryads, dragons, giants, and talking animals. And as they enter through the magic portals, the Narnian air works a change in their natures. The Greek centaurs, German dwarves, British witches become Narnian through and through. 
So that's a defense of uh, Lewis's um, motley uh, arrangement. He get this patchwork arrangement of different creatures where you have Father Christmas in Narnia, just as you have Bacchus, the Greek god of wine and revelry, just as you have Aslan, uh, a Christ figure. <laughs> you have all of these different creatures all uh, assembled in Narnia. And Tolkien thought that was just sloppy and couldn't get past it. And many other people agree with him. But remember, Lewis sort of wrote himself into a corner here. Um, Devin Brown talks about that, how Lewis had already committed himself to the idea of Christmas in Narnia, where the, the, the famous line that the White Witch had made it always winter and never Christmas. Well, eventually you're going to have to see Father Christmas. If Christmas is going to return um, when the winter melts, if it's always winter and never Christmas, then the breaking of the spell would mean that the winter would thaw and Christmas would reappear. And if Christmas reappears, then certainly Father Christmas will be leading the charge. And so uh, Lewis's inclusion of Father Christmas has a lot of baggage on it, whether you agree with it or disagree with it. Um, it certainly is emblematic that it signifies a great deal, just as much as the Robin did when the children first meet the Robin as this uh, inkling that spring was coming that the spell was breaking. Father Christmas's arrival is another example of that. And um, I referenced Devin Brown. He, in his book, Inside Narnia, contrasts the White Witch with her uh, accumulation of power as a means of sucking in or robbing others of their power. Then the exact opposite of that would be something like Father Christmas, whose very nature is defined by gift-giving and generosity and giving out that the celebration and joy of Christmas is one of, of gift, one of um, sacrifice and giving to others and spreading joy rather than what the white witch who sucks it all into herself. Remember, she turns life to stone. That's what she does. So, the, so Father Christmas arrives. He says, I've come at last. She has kept me out for a long time, but I have got in at last. Aslan is on the move. The witch's magic is weakening. So Father Christmas himself uh, admits that he is subservient to Aslan, that his joy is derivative of Aslan's joy, that his celebration is a byproduct of Aslan's reality, that he is the king. He'll say that again when he leaves, long live the true king. And he'll capitalize king to reference Aslan, who's uh, coming is heralded by the thawing of winter and the arrival of gifts, the arrival of joy, the arrival of bells in Father Christmas. The response to that is a magnificently beautiful line from Lewis. When Father Christmas comes, he says, Aslan is on the move. Lewis says this, and Lucy felt running through her that deep shiver of gladness, which you only get if you are being solemn and still. Let me give you that again. And Lucy felt running through her that deep shiver of gladness, which you only get if you are being solemn and still. This is a return of that numinous feeling that they experienced when they first heard Aslan's name. It's this glorious mingling of awe and reverence. This, this sense of excitement and the sense of respect and 
even uh, this sense of terror, this deep shiver where she is solemn and still and yet filled with gladness coursing through her, that that's the right response. And, the, and Father Christmas's arrival here is not, and Lewis takes pains to mention this, he says he's not uh, that typical image of Santa Claus that we might be used to, that this is Father Christmas in a much more dignified and much grander light. This is not a childish image. Childlike, certainly, he brings joy and gifts and wonder, but this is, an, this is another inkling of the holy that Lewis is after. And Lucy's response there with the deep shiver of gladness is an indication of that. Father Christmas Christmas here is a precursor to Aslan in that regard. But he begins handing out gifts to each of these children. And these gifts are very important. They are used in the book, certainly. Um, But then they're also referenced again at the beginning of Prince Caspian, when the children are called back into Narnia about a thousand years later in Narnian time. One of the first things they they discover and by that time, they have become old relics, almost forgotten relics, are these gifts. They discover Peter's sword and Susan's horn and so on. So these gifts are going to, going to matter uh, beyond just as functions within the plot. They are emblematic on a larger scale. And one of the ways we see that is what Father Christmas tells Peter when he gives him his gift. He says to Peter, these are your presents and they are tools, not toys. The time to use them is perhaps near at hand. Bear them well. And so we see this moment as one of uh, passage, this one of maturation, that this is the glowing road to manhood and womanhood for Peter and Susan and Lucy. And obviously Edmund is not there yet. He is still wrestling with immaturity. He's still wrestling with selfishness that has to be killed. It has to be taken has to be taken care of before he's ready to advance to his calling as a high king of Narnia. Remember, these are all high kings and queens. All of the children are, and this is a moment of passage for them, where they are advancing into their destinies. And what it looks like is the assumption of responsibility. These are tools, not toys. These are gifts from Father Christmas, yes, but they are not toys. Peter and Susan and Lucy are ready for more. And they each receive with gratitude the gifts that will equip them to reign as kings and queens of Narnia. He says, bear them well. This is a a chivalry level experience. This, This medieval sense of assuming the responsibility necessary to govern as a good king or queen. Bear them well. Remember, Lucy will be Lucy the Valiant. That these are these are essential to their identities as kings and queens. And so therefore they must accept these gifts and steward them well. So King Peter receives his sword and shield. Uh, Later we discover in Prince Caspian that he names the sword Rindon. Uh, We don't get that in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, but uh, these are the same gifts that will linger for a thousand years in Narnia and will be reclaimed when the children are called back in Prince Caspian. Lewis says, Peter was silent and solemn as he received these gifts, for he felt they were a very serious kind of present. And that is an important note for Lewis. And you see it throughout his work. Um, Lewis once said, joy is the serious business of heaven. That there is a, 
a beautiful marriage of joy and seriousness in the Christian life. Uh, the joy of the Lord is your strength, uh, Nehemiah says. There's something about joy and strength, holiness and happiness, m- mixing, that they, they are one and the same in the Christian life, that the knowledge of God and the assumption of who we were meant to be in God is a serious endeavor. It is a serious task to know God and to know yourself. But it is also a serious joy. It is a satisfaction. It is a a pleasure to become who you were meant to be. And then he gives Susan a bow and a quiver full of arrows and a little ivory horn. He tells Susan and Lucy that they must not fight in the battle, that that is not their job. That is not what they were made for, that their job is to help and to heal To Susan, he says, I think help of some kind will come to you. And that's embodied in her horn, that when she blows it, help will come. And then Lucy is given a dagger for self-defense, but she's also given this vial this uh, filled with a cordial that heals with a single drop. And so each of these children are receiving gifts of their own kind. They're receiving gifts that are tailored to their identities. And for High King Peter, the Magnificent, The gift that he is meant to steward is the sword and the shield. He is meant to fight and he is meant to protect, which is the masculine requirement. This is what the glowing road to manhood is. You must fight and you must protect. You must cultivate. You must fight for that which you have built. Fighting for your kingdom, fighting for your country, fighting for your culture, your family. This is what men were made for. And now Peter is equipped for that. Susan and Lucy have likewise been equipped for that which they are meant to contribute. They are helpers in the task of defending. Remember what Eve was. She is a help. She is a helper suitable for Adam's task. She's made from man and for man. God is made from the dust and for God and for the dust. There's this complementarity to what Peter and what Susan and Lucy have been given. That Susan is there to aid in the great quest as a high queen. And Lucy is there to heal and redeem and nurture and restore that which has been lost. What a beautifully feminine picture of nurture and growth and warmth and healing and life. Remember, Eve is the mother of all the living. That's what her name literally means. And for Lucy, she becomes this almost maternal figure of that which brings life out of death with the picture of this cordial. And Susan is that who brings help to the task of fighting and defending. And then Peter and ultimately Edmund as well will be the ones who actually do the fighting and the dying and the sacrificing in this military sense. It's a wonderful portrait in these pictures of masculinity and femininity affirmed in Lewis with these symbols. Now Lucy comes in. And she says what a lot of people might say. She says, why, sir, I think, I don't know, but I think I could be brave enough. Father Christmas says battlefields are not for the women. It is not for them. They become ugly things. And she says, but I think I could be brave enough. And this is a moment where perhaps the modern cultural climate we're in might also disagree with Lewis to say that men were given a particular task and women are given a separate task. 
And Lucy says, but I think I'm just as brave. I think I could be brave enough. And Father Christmas says, that is not the point. Remember, she will be Queen Lucy the Valiant. Her bravery is not in question. And she has already been quite brave. Brave in being the first to venture into Narnia. Jill will do the same thing in the silver chair, where she will be the one who uh, blazes the path through the woods. Where there is a role for Lucy and for Susan and for Jill and for all of the women, just as much as there's a role for all the men. Her bravery is not the point. The point is that she must learn to flourish within the design that she has been given. That is the point. You must accept the gifts that you've been given and bear them well. That is what Father Christmas says. That's what Aslan says. That our task is to accept the road that we have been called to. Just like in the Lord of the Rings, Frodo must accept the call. He must take the road that he's been presented. We must accept with grace and with gladness of heart the particular quests that we have been made for. And Peter accepts the sword, and Susan accepts the bow and the horn, and Lucy accepts the dagger and the vial. They accept the gifts that have been made for them, and they are prepared to continue their march, equipped to be men and women of Narnia. But before then, as usual, Father Christmas also presents a feast. He brings out a steaming teapot, and presents this cups and saucers to everyone. And Lewis says, everyone enjoyed themselves before Mr. Beaver has the closing line and says, time to be moving on now. So thank you for listening. Be sure to uh, listen next time as we look at chapter 11, titled Aslan is Nearer. The podcast you just heard was made using Anchor. Ever thought about making your own podcast? Anchor makes it really easy for anyone to get started. It's a one-stop shop for recording, hosting, and distributing podcasts. Best of all, it's 100% free. Sign up now at anchor.fm new. That's anchor.fm new to get started.